Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 13. A few months ago, someone on Facebook alerted me to a new book by Jelana Goble called No Sugarcoating, The Coffee Talk You Need About Foster Parenting. I got my hands on the book, and as I read it, I kept nodding my head in agreement with the author. Our experiences have been very similar. And if I were going to write a book for new and prospective foster parents, it would look a lot like this book. It's a short read, you'll finish it in a day or two, but it's full of relevant information and helpful insights for anyone considering becoming a foster parent. No Sugar Coating is available on Amazon, and you can find links to it along with links to Jelana's Facebook page and website in the show notes below. It's also listed on my recommended resources page at afosteredlife.com. And I have five copies to give away to listeners of A Fostered Life podcast. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for information on how to enter my drawing for your free copy of No Sugar Coating, the coffee talk you need about foster parenting. And now, here's my conversation with author and foster parent, Jelana Goebel. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, um, I always start my interviews with the exact same question because I'm fascinated to know what brings people to this place. So when did your life Mm -hmm. first intersect with the foster care system? Yeah, well... um... Honestly, I was a Spanish major in college and went down and um, lived and worked at a Guatemalan orphanage for a while, came back to the United States in my like early 20s, got married um, and really felt like pulled back down to Guatemala. And so my husband and I went down, he went to language school, we kind of lived a, a a normal life, so to speak, in terms of, um, uh, I taught English in Guatemala on Monday through Friday, and he went to language learning school. And then on the weekend, we would go back to the orphanage that I had lived in several years previously and did respite for house parents that lived in the trailers with the kids at the orphanage. And then they came, the house parents came and did respite at our house just to get a weekend away. And that was really the first time that my husband and I were both kind of like, wow, you know, here, here are all these really vulnerable children. Half of them were truly orphans and the other half were just in this temporary, almost like foster care situation where they were waiting to go back home. But it was really through that um, year of experience that on the way back on the plane um, to the United States, we were like, where are the vulnerable children here? That led us straight to the doors of foster care. Honestly, I didn't really know anyone that had ever done foster care. I kind of knew the concept of foster care, but it wasn't like I was surrounded by people who were foster parents growing up or had any friends that were in the foster care system. So it was really like stepping in in our mid-20s without any biological children and just saying like, hey, we're available. And, um, you know, we went in thinking that we were just going to do respite. And as often the case, like if you're willing and don't have a criminal background and are, you know, have a pulse, then you like get, you know, plunged into this like jaw dropping opportunity to become foster parents. And so that is how we found ourselves at 25 saying yes to two kids in foster care for a long-term placement as our first placement. 
Wow. So you did not have children of your own yet. I mean, you had not. No. I hate that way of putting it. You did not have biological children. Yeah. I did not. I did not. And so that's what I look back and it just feels like almost comical in some ways. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. we were willing. Yes, we took the classes. But I think anyone that, that has taken those classes knows that there's kind of like the theory of how things sound in class when you're reading about it and then like the the boots on the ground reality of what trauma looks like day in, day out and, and all of that. So we really hit the ground um, running and learned a lot. In fact, our first placement was um, two boys and one of them, a six and nine year old, and one of them um, just had a lot of trauma that manifested itself in like rage and ran away. And I was like devastated because I just thought, why, why does he not want to hang on to like what we are offering here? I feel like I'm trying to do all the things right. And then had to learn a very painful lesson. And then this first fostering experience that sometimes, you know, what these precious ones are carrying before they even reach your front door is, is more than they can handle. And that the safety, you know, that the, that the safety um, issues are more than you can handle despite your heart wanting to say yes. And so that was one of the realities that I came crashing into our first few months of doing foster care. And then the six-year-old stayed with us until, um, until he was transitioned into what we thought was going to be a more permanent placement. And then that fell through. Oh gosh. Yeah. Wow. You're describing just so many, so many of the, the um, different layers of complications that our kids face from the minute that they, you know, um, in some cases from the minute they're born, but, you know, right. certainly from the minute they enter the system, but it, it starts long before that too. But uh, the system yeah. then does its own, you know, um, own additional trauma. So it's, it's, yeah. gosh, that's hard. It's, it's interesting. Just, I want to pause for a moment because we've just, I just, had a couple people in, I run a coaching, um, kind of like a coaching group for foster parents called the flourishing foster Mm -hmm. parent. And we've been talking recently about when knowing when it's time to actually say, I can't be the placement for this child anymore. Mm -hmm. And that hard, um, that hard kind of place of feeling like it's not about your dedication to the child. It's about whether you're able to give the child what they need. And yeah. a lot of people are like, we don't want this child to think we've given up on him or her. Yeah. But it's not ultimately about that. It's it's oftentimes like no. you were just saying, it's the child needs more than you're able to give. And, and it's hard right. sometimes for foster parents to admit that because we don't like to right. fail. <laughs> and we don't want to fail right. these kids again. We don't want to have to move them again. So Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think... Looking back, you know, that was, gosh, over, that was like 16, 17 years ago. And so, you know, looking back, there's just a lot of things that with the knowledge and the experience that I have now that I would go back and look at that through a very different lens. But I think initially, I kind of was, um, you know, thinking like, well, the, the foster placement agency, like they're the experts, like they'll know whether right. it's time to, you know, what what I should do here. And I think now, just um, being more seasoned, I have a lot more trust of, of my own gut of like what is needed in the situation. Um, so I was fortunate that the agency I was working with in New York at the time where we first became certified foster parents actually made the decision for me after the child kept repeatedly running away and, and a, a major safety thing happened and they just said, we're calling it, we're removing yeah. him. But yeah. that was heartbreaking for me because yeah. I still 
felt um, like a failure. And I still felt like, wow, for my husband and I, it felt like here's the one thing where we can't rely on our own resources to like pull ourselves out of this. There was just like nothing we could do to change the outcome. And I think for a lot of people that are, you know, choosing to step into foster care and um, are, are well resourced in the myriad of ways that that can mean just in terms of, you know, knowing how to like make things happen and get things done and plug kids into resources and go after, you know, those services and all those things like to recognize like you can still do all those things but it still might not be enough. That is a really, really tough um, place to be. And I feel a ton of empathy for people who are walking that tightrope of wanting to do well by children. That's not why any of us get into this Mm -hmm. to say goodbye under those hard circumstances. And yet um, I think when we look at, um, you know, I think one of the hardest things as a foster parent is to look at how do I allow this child to thrive and what does the the larger picture of the other people in the family need to thrive? Mm-hmm. And hopefully those things can both be poured into both groups so that we can both be thriving. But there are times when um, there are times when it's, it's just too much and those really tough, agonizing, tearful decisions have to be made. So yes. I have a lot of empathy for those that you're walking alongside that are facing that. Yes, yes. And I've shared with them and um, and I'll share here too. We've had to have, we've had to call it on a couple of different um, children who were placed with us in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, recognizing we aren't the right home for them. And in one case, mm-hmm. it was a medically fragile newborn who we were mm-hmm. only supposed to have for a few nights while they found him a long-term yeah. home and then they didn't. And then mm-hmm. we were like, yes, we can do this. And then, like you said, the toll it was taking on both my husband and me, we had three mm-hmm. other small children at the time. And then this newborn who had right. all these needs and we were not sleeping. We were literally yeah. not sleeping and we yeah. were just destroyed. And, um, after seven weeks we had to say mm-hmm. he need, you mm-hmm. know, we can't do this. And the guilt that I felt and the fear, like, mm-hmm. where is he going to go next? What I yeah. want to share though, is he ended up being placed with a brand new single foster mom she had, Mm. he became her world. He became everything to her. He got all of her attention. And it's so funny because she said within a week of moving in with her, he was sleeping more soundly. He was, you Mm. know, eating well. And on the one hand, I kind of thought, well, he's a little older now than he was, you know, seven, eight weeks ago. He was a preemie and all that. But also I was like, he's also in a low stimulation environment because our house was high stim. And now that I know more Mm -hmm. about, you know, parenting Mm -hmm. children with neonatal abstinence syndrome and everything, they need a low stimulation mm-hmm. environment and we were everything mm-hmm. but that you know sure and so um just letting people know that sometimes it's also about humility to say we're not yeah. the right placement and there is somebody out there for this child where they're going to yeah. thrive so right totally but that takes a lot of um letting go so to speak because we all know that like you know foster placement um foster options for placements are in short supply and so you know, there's a there's a an uh, ability to trust in in that humility to say like we can't do this and we want this little guy to have the very best and we recognize that we are not it and we have to trust that somebody yeah. else is it. I love that story, Christy. I think I think it just calls in calls into um, what I think foster care so often tips on its head, which is that we cannot kind of be it all and do it all and do it all well. That we really have to discern who and what we're saying yes 
to in order to continue to attempt to thrive, yes. <laughs> let alone survive, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And that's the whole thing, that whole like idea of thriving, because I can tell you that I was not thriving in my first year. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. surviving and barely. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, it brought me to my knees, the whole, this whole thing, this whole mm-hmm. thing brought me to my knees and I'm a go-getter, competent, you yeah. know, resourceful person and it took a toll on absolutely every corner of my being. (laughs) And um, I hear you. Yeah. Which is why I started the flourishing foster parent. That's what it's called because I'm like, I want to help people not just survive this, but flourish, help the family to flourish and help all of us to be in it for the long haul. You know, that is so great. Well, I love your heart behind the flourishing foster parent and the same heart with which I wrote, you know, sugarcoating because I just feel like what can we do with the wisdom we have so that people don't fall into the same pitfalls that we've fallen into. And I think that there is a, a certain element of becoming a foster family that there's so much newness that I think it's a little bit inevitable that that you're going to take dips into survival mode at at certain points along the journey, but that we can't all constantly live there. And that's the place where I feel like, man, there have been long stretches where I feel like we've been in survival and that's not sustainable or good for anyone (laughs) to be in that. And so I feel like our hearts are similar um, uh, and just wanting others to, to, to thrive and to learn some things that you and I have both maybe learned the hard way or taken yes. the long route to learn yes, yes. over the years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which brings me to what I want to talk about your book. Um, but first, before we get there, just for the sake of listeners, can you paint like a broad stroke of what your family has looked like in the last 16 years and what it looks like now? And then I want to dig into talking about your book. Sure. I have two. So the six-year-old that lived with us for a year that I mentioned um, earlier, whose brother um, was not able to maintain in our home, um, I won't go into all the details of that, but just to say, like, he was transitioned into a group home, and um, we were still in a relationship with him, and then one day we went to pick him up, to take him off site, to do something, and I was just informed that he was gone. And our story came to a very abrupt end. I literally knocked on some doors of other foster care related agencies in New York at the time, which is structured very different from where I live now in Oregon. Anyway, it, um, our story just totally dropped off. And then as he, uh, four years ago, um, as a 19 year old young man, um, we, you know, I guess three and a half years ago as a 19 year old young man, we reconnected. And it has been fascinating to hear his perspective on remembering like what that one year from age six to seven in first grade meant to him. Um, He called me Miss Jelana when he lived with me and he now calls me mom. Um, His story has taken many twists and turns like a lot of kids. that have bounced around in foster care. Part of his story involves, you know, becoming involved in the juvenile justice system and then that leading to a pipeline of incarceration um, and homelessness and various things. Um, And yet we are reconnected um, and he is, um, he is who we claim as our oldest child. So I refer to him as the son of my heart because Mm -hmm. we are not legally connected in any way, but he is absolutely, he is absolutely um, 
mine. And so he yeah. is 22 and he is um, under the roof of my home right now for mm-hmm. a season. Mm-hmm. Then we have a 15 and um, almost 13 biological daughters. We have uh, an 11 year old um, who we fostered and then adopted um, as a toddler. And um, what's interesting about the story with my 11 year old is that I have um, walked a really long and winding road with his um, biological mom and she and her other kids, both his full and half siblings have become part of our um, extended family. And his, his uh, birth mom and I do a lot of co-speaking together, both mm. to new caseworkers um, at new caseworker trainings at uh, the foster parent foundations training in Oregon, we co-speak and we actually spoke together at a retreat recently called called to love mm. um, about what it's been like to cultivate a relationship and to be, you know, over a decade into what walking alongside each other has looked like. Parts of our journey have looked like, um, you know, the first few years of, of trying to come alongside her as she worked a return to parent plan. And then when the plan changed to adoption, still coming alongside her as she had another baby. And um, we actually have fostered and returned that uh, child to her, who's the full biological brother of my 11-year-old, twice. And so we fostered him as an infant and returned him to her treatment facility when he was um, like seven months old. And then five years later, through a relapse, we fostered him for his preschool year and then returned him to his mom um, nine months later. So it's been interesting to be on both kind of the general applicant side of like raising my hand to do foster care and meeting Jennifer at court. Um, And it's also been interesting for me to be on the relative side, because once we adopted her child, we then in the state of Oregon's eyes became relative Mm. to her and became a relative um, provider for her child that we fostered and returned twice. And so I think what's interesting about that is most people would say, look at the situation and say, well, she's in the process of adopting her third child. Of course, she's adopting her fourth. And that has not been the case. And there's been a lot of emotional roller coaster to accompany that. And I am so proud of Jennifer that she is today clean and sober and parenting her child and that we have the kind of relationship where her child calls me auntie and my husband papa and that she's able to stop by her house and that our house and able to, you know, be around our table. It's a very interesting kind of cobbled together blended family um, that we worked really hard with no textbook to to get to where we are. So that's my 11-year-old. And then my um, eight-year-old, we was our, like you, Christy, our, can you take this newborn for a few nights? Yeah. <laughs> Placement, who is, now, who is now eight and never left, um, much to our joy and delight. Um, but uh, he has uh, many uh, challenges just due to what he was exposed to in utero. And he is our... He is our joy, and um, it's also been very humbling road to really kind of tip on our head, like everything I knew about kind of traditional parenting and even parenting kids with trauma and how we engage to parenting a child that really has brain-based differences and is not neurotypical, but neurodiverse. I feel like we are on a very different track, and it's been very humbling for me to continually be in the learner seat of how... Do I love and parent this child well, who, is, who creates a lot of ripple effects in our family? Um, and how do, we, how, do we, how do we all come together 
with the seven of us under our roof or five kids and my husband and I, how do we, how do we do this and um, make sure that we're pouring into our marriage, that we're pouring into ourselves individually, that we're pouring into our kids who are all different ages and stages with various levels of, of needs. And I think that it's tempting to say, well, the three boys under your roof are the three, you know, that, that came to you via foster care, but also recognize like, well, while my kids, well, all my kids are doing fine, so to speak. And, you know, I think I feel a heart for my biological girls to not get lost in the mix because we all know that um, the squeaky wheel gets the grease oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that can be true to pour into someone. We know that like the pieces of the pie are not going to be sliced into equal pieces all the time. That's just not reality. That's just not how families work. But to have a keen eye on when one child is, could easily take up, you know, 90% of the parenting effort and energy pie, like what are we doing to create some equilibrium in our family so that this is sustainable? And that's definitely something that I've been um, just continually learning and striving to like achieve balance in new ways that I think that if my youngest didn't struggle in the ways he did, even doing foster care, even knowing about trauma, I would not have been exposed to all the things that um, our youngest has exposed us to. And we adore him. And it has definitely put us on a very different parenting path. Yeah. You know, I'm so familiar with how you are talking about your youngest son. Uh, We have, I mean, you and I have such similar stories on so many levels. Um, and we too have a child very similar to what you're describing and that there's that mm-hmm. challenge of talking about these things in a way that recognizes how deeply we love these children and this you know the hard the ones yeah. that are kind of bring the most challenges and like you said the ripple effects mm-hmm. they both you know they're incredible and amazing and we love them with our whole hearts and they're challenges can push us absolutely to the deepest, darkest corners of who we are. And, um, and I think that's something that people need to know. It's not, and I would say for, for everyone, anyone listening, this is not a reason not to do it. And as hard as it has been at times, I would never, I have never once wished we weren't doing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that's I something that people need to know it, just because it is so hard and it does require, mm-hmm. like you were saying, I think earlier, um, services and all sorts of additional appointments and your life mm-hmm. is highly disrupted because of mm-hmm. the challenges of, you know, mm-hmm. neuroatypical or neurodiverse child mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, can happen to anybody. I mean, you can give birth to of a course. child with autism sure. or, you know, any number of things. But, um, but it just, I think it's just worth noting, like, it is very hard. And you do love this child so profoundly. And when they have their yeah. wins, their wins are like gold mines, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think what's so been so interesting for me is to just say, you know, just because something is excruciatingly difficult does not mean it's not worthy. Yeah. You know, I think so often we think of things of like, if it's hard, then is it is it worth it? And I think, you know, maybe, you know, looking at on paper at all of the the unique sets of um, just 
strengths and challenges that my that my little guy possesses, I think I would have been totally freaked out. But I mm-hmm. think that that's where relationship is a game changer. And that's where knowing and loving him and having him under my roof and, and bonding with him is, you know, it's, it's a game changer to, to look at that li- than rather than just like looking at him on paper. And I think yes. that's true for all of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that, um, yeah, just, the, the expectations that we have as, um, yeah, I think so oftentimes the expectations we have as, as parents is that we hope things will go smoothly. And we do, we hope things go smoothly and we celebrate that it does. But I think with our, with my little guy and perhaps with yours, Christy, I feel like it's taught me to, um, celebrate things that I would have missed otherwise, that I would have taken as like low level behavioral expectations. I celebrate those things now. I notice those things now. Um, you know, like the the making it to target with the seatbelt buckled, like that's something that I, with my three, um, (laughs) with my three other kids, you know, I, uh, I, I would not have ever like thought to high five a child about that because whoop, that's just what you do. But with my youngest, it's like, wow, what an accomplishment, but I'm so proud of you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that there's a gift. I mean, as exhausting as it is, I really do feel like there's an inverted gift of being able to recognize these things that I mistook as low-level behavioral expectations and to really recognize them as gift. Like, he has forced me to slow down and to appreciate things that I would have um, blazed on by before. definitely, definitely. So, um, okay, so you have written a book, and um, I got my hands on this book. Thank you very much. And um, I have to tell you, I I think there was part of me that was somewhat dreading reading it. I'm going to tell you why. I have read tell some, me why. I have read some books that had to do with foster care. I'm not going to name any titles, but mm-hmm. that just, I either was just like, wow, this is so romanticizing it right now. I can't even, mm-hmm. I don't even know what to say. Like this, the, the person writing this book and I have had completely different experiences. So I've had that mm-hmm. experience or, or I've thought to myself, this person is such a better person than me. They've handled everything so well. <laughs> and, or I don't know. I just, I had, I had, re- I think there were reasons that I kind of resisted finally sitting down Mm -hmm. and reading it. I have to tell you, this is the book that everyone who is thinking about becoming a foster parent must read. And I, I'm so excited because I do, I just did a giveaway of one of my top all time favorite books, um, which is Wounded Children Healing Homes. I just did a giveaway in November where Mm -hmm. I gave a couple, I gave four copies away to people who were in my group. I did like a drawing just to keep it fun. And this is going to be my book for December. So I'm really excited. Oh, yay! Yeah, to be to be getting this into some people's hands. So, um, so thank you for writing this book. And thank you for being so honest and so, um, so comprehensive. I you covered so much Mm -hmm. ground in a relatively short, easy, quick read, you know? Thank you. I was well aware that um, this book could be like five times, yeah. <laughs> five times the length. I feel like every little, you know, chapter could have been, you know, several pages long. But I really felt like when I looked back and thought about like, what do I wish I'd been told? What are the pitfalls that I've fallen into that I wish somebody had taken me out to coffee and said, Shalana, like, as you start, keep these things in mind. Um, and I think, you know, after taking some time, last year to, to really write the narrative of how I feel like foster care and adapting from foster care has 
has um, changed my life and put my life on a different path, um, which was really good and therapeutic for me to, to write all of that. This little book came from that because I kept on, as I was writing, kept on coming across these tidbits of like, oh, I wish, I wish somebody had told me that, or I wish um, I could, you know, share this insight. And it was all of those things and writing like kind of the narrative based like memoir almost of how my life has changed doing foster care that I kept on dumping all of these snippets into like one document and then went through and that document. And that's how it became this little book. And I intentionally wanted to keep it small so that it wasn't daunting because the reality is all of us have full lives and um, we just need to, to keep it snappy. And these were the, the main bullet points, but I am really grateful for your feedback. That means a lot to me coming from somebody that has lived this journey that it rings true for you. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You covered, I mean, like you said, you touched on things and I think um, each of the things, it's almost like I would like to do this as a book study with a group of people. Last year I took a group Mm -hmm. through um, uh, the Brian Post book, um, Beyond Consequences, Logic, and Control. And we dug into each chapter and just discussed everything. And I feel like this would really be a great book to do that with as well, because you, like you said, you you give like a, um, a you give a, a, a overview of the important things, and then you could, you could do a talk on each one of them. Um, I appreciate so much how you, one of, let me just put it this way, for people listening, my kind of one of my, the bells that I ring a lot is um, I had no idea how much I was going to be triggered by the things that mm. I experienced. It just, I had never mm. experienced anything like that before. And you wrote, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find it now. I don't even remember which chapter it was in, but you wrote about knowing your own triggers. Would you mind yeah. talking a little bit about that and maybe expanding a little bit on that for um, kind of for people listening? Yeah, you know, I think that something that I really emphasize in the book is, um, I'll answer that question, but just to back up just sure, a little sure. bit, is is just talking about how um, one of the things I was really unprepared for is just how sometimes we have heavy, kids will disclose heavier things, um, even in lighter moments. And so I talk about that in the book, about how we just never know what's, what's going on in the the, um, the hearts and brains and minds of the little ones and bigger ones that we welcome through our front door. Um, and I talk, a, give some examples about how I've seen that manifest. I also talk about how so often in the foster parenting classes, we talk about, um, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. That's usually covered, but we, but not a ton is talked about secondary trauma. And I feel like that is really a space that's wide open for foster parents to really, um, you know, dig deep into what is secondary trauma and what is compassion fatigue and what are the the reactions of those things. Um, because I think that, you know, there are those physical and behavioral and even emotional warning signs that we have when we are taking this on. And that was something that I was super unprepared for. Um, I was prepared to recognize it in the kids I was welcoming through my front door with fight, flight, or freeze, but unaware of how it would affect me and what the manifestations of kind of hearing the stories and trying to care well and experiencing the behaviors, how that would affect me. And so that led me to just talk about how kids will have triggers, but, but, you know, we will too. And I think none of us are superhuman um, and can just kind of take on and take on and take on without having a health, healthy outlet to like release some of that. And I talked 
about some suggestions of what those are for me. But, um, you know, and while there, I could have probably cited a lot of examples in this quick little paragraph, I talk about how, um, you know, one of my sons, you know, will moan no and like loudly stomp his feet, like stomp up the stairs or pound the walls or do different things to make it very clear that he is not pleased with whatever answer he's just been given or whatever little thing he's just been asked to do. And while it's far from the most exasperating behavior in my home, like far, far, yes. far, 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 <laughs> there are, um, that is just very triggering for me. Like I can just see myself like spike up. Um, and there was a time before I learned more. I still don't do it perfectly where, you know, after a door slam where I would like barge into his room and like want to engage with him with my own self, like being escalated. And while I'm not 100% perfect, I have come a long way in just trying to like, let it roll off me like rain and just engage when he's ready. And to just, mm -hmm. you know, say these phrases that really are like calming to him, but also calming for myself. So I've just had to own that. Like is there are things that are said or, or um, behaviors in the house that can like send my inner like, oh, no, you don't, yeah. um, you know, right up there. Yeah. And that was something that I was unprepared for um, of, you know, how we would have our own triggers. And I think that the more we can talk about this, mm -hmm. the more it just is, is real. I mean, I, I, I don't remember in, in foster parent training class, and I mean, no disrespect, um, because that there's a lot to cover and there's only 24 hours to get right. done. And I feel like I really, I really want foster parents to not feel isolated because there's already so much isolation that can be built into this journey that I feel like the more foster mom to foster mom or family to family can talk about these things, the, the higher the likelihood of just kind of breaking down that shame barrier that we can feel of like, Oh, I must not be a good parent because I'm responding in this way or the other versus just owning it and naming it and trying to move through it so that we know how to respond in a healthier and healthier way, but to not hold ourselves to some impossible standard of perfection because yes. at the end of the day, kids need parents who are real. Yes. Um, and I feel like there, in my own experience, I have had practice modeling what apologizing looks like to my kids yes. when I haven't made a good choice. Yes. And I do feel like though there isn't, you know, though there are times I'd rather that I, you know, didn't have to, I think that there's, that there's a sense of like mutuality and like a two way arrow of like, it's not like I'm just perfect in demanding you to constantly be apologizing to me for these things. Like we are a family and in families, we, we sometimes don't do things perfectly. And that includes moms and dads. And I need to own it and I can, you know, model what that looks like to my kids. And I feel like without the gift of foster care, I probably would have had a parenting journey where I would have needed to apologize a lot less. Let's yes. just be real about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. Here, we, here we are. And I feel like there's lessons to be gleaned from, from every experience. And I think some of those lessons is just taking the time to, to stand back and to get some perspective and to say, you know, foster care is not just something that you like throw in your cart, like at the grocery store and then keep on, keep on rolling. Right. You know, it is something that is going to affect the very fabric of, of your family and also you and what you bring, you know, to your family and to just be prepared to engage that in a non-shame based way. But to know 
it's going to affect you one way or the other. Like it's impossible for it to just be neutral all the time. Yes. Yeah. There are, you've touched on three areas in this conversation that are kind of the big three that I feel like aren't covered in training or aren't covered thoroughly that I feel like these are the big ones that we really need to give people considering being foster parents. And one of them is like you said, knowing your triggers and having a plan for how you're going to help yourself to stay in a calm state Mm -hmm. because you know, that, that took a lot of work for me. Um, And then getting informed on trauma-informed care and just how parenting from a trauma perspective does look different than having Mm -hmm. a child who hasn't been through a lot of the things that that um, our kids have been through. And then um, and then another one, which I would love to hear you share a little bit more about is uh, navigating relationships with your kid's family and your kid's parents, Mm -hmm. your foster child's Mm -hmm. parents or relatives. and I, you know, this is something that they do not, in my experience, I have not found mm-hmm. a whole lot of resources. You said earlier, we didn't, mm-hmm. we, we did this without a, a manual. Yeah. Maybe that should be the next book you write. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I feel like some of the things that I talk about, um, because I, I really did want it to dive into that. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of people that just ask, like, how, how did you do this? And I, how did you cultivate, you know, this more than decade long relationship with your son's birth mom? And I think that it's important to know that it wasn't like setting out as a goal. Like it was never my intention that like one day we would become this, this, you know, family all sitting around one table. To be honest, I think that that would have, um, really intimidated me. Hmm. I didn't have a model for what that would look like. And that probably would have made me like sprint the other way, just out of pure fear, pure fear of the unknown, pure fear of the other, pure fear of like not having a guidebook. And so it started in in my relationship with uh, my 11 year old birth mom. It started just through these like um, very small, almost seemingly insignificant, but very significant um, engagements of just looking her in the eye and initially shaking her hand at court and, and introducing myself. Yeah. And, you know, I started out with me saying like, Hey, I know I'm meeting you on the, what's one of the worst days of your life. And I just want to let you know, like I'm taking good care of your, your son until you are healthy enough to do so again. And I handed her a picture and she burst out into tears. And I found myself very unexpectedly giving her a hug and just telling her that I was rooting for her. And then that was followed up with me doing my own transport intentionally to just continue to say, Hey, how are you? And to show her that I was a real person who was really caring for her child as well as trying to extend some, some care and concern for her as well. And it didn't take very long um, before she shared with me like, Hey, I grew up visiting with my mom in the exact same office in the exact same room, even Mm. where I'm now visiting with my son. Would it be possible for you to supervise visits for me out in the community? I got permission from the child's caseworker who basically said, your eyes are on that baby at all times. But yes, if you feel compelled to do this, you're welcome to do this. And so that kind of set us on a path of, of um, doing weekly visits, not at my home. I did not feel comfortable with that for years to invite her into my home. So I'm a big proponent of like slow and steady right. um, and to just like incrementally open the door um, instead of like flinging it wide open and realizing that it needs to be pulled back and shut. And mm-hmm. so um, so it was years before Jennifer actually came in into my home. Um, and part of that was because she was connected to a partner that wasn't safe. And as they were presenting as a couple, I felt like I needed to 
defer to the lowest common denominator of safety. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, there's a lot that I talk about in this chapter, but I basically, you know, share how there is very natural to have like almost like an us against them dynamic develop, even if we're not intentional about it, because I think the very nature of the foster care system is saying like, I'm removing this child from you, parentheses, bad parent, and placing him with you, good parent. And while nobody's saying good or bad, I think that when we, when we recognize that so many of child welfare involved parents have been products of the systems themselves, I think that there is that kind of, that message is written into the very nature of their kids being taken from them. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like while actions speak louder than words, I really do feel like there is a time for words. And I encourage people to just be a little bit more overt, even if it's stepping outside our comfort zone, to just be a little bit more bold and just say, you know, I'm not here to replace you. You're his mom. I'm just here to take good care of him until you're able to. That alone or something along those lines at the beginning is such an important icebreaker, I think, in breaking down some of those initial barriers. Um, in the chapter, I talk about, um, you know, cultivating relationships slowly. I talk about how, you know, humble love offerings, that some of what we may see our kids' biological family offering them may be something that doesn't feel significant to us, but we need to honor that because it's always significant. And I talk about with one of my children, you know, his mom getting him blankets from the dollar store before she disappeared, never to be, you know, seen or heard from again. And how like I, I have those, those two blankets and they are precious possessions. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I talk about how, you know, in kind of in a perfect world, since the goal of foster care is to return kids to their families, you know, and since we know that so many families are in the very place that led them to be child welfare involved in the first place due to like shame and isolation, it is a beautiful holistic picture to begin to say, hey, once you have your child back, I would love to continue to you know, offer respite or do those things. I fully recognize that for some of your listeners, Christy, this is like a total fairy tale, like right. never going to happen. Right. Because right. for a lot of people, we have to recognize, even on the foster parent side, you can have a heart of openness and the, the birth parent for their own issues of what they are dealing with um, may not be able to receive it or yeah. shame may just completely take them out of the game or yes. hostility towards themselves that they direct towards the foster parent. Yes. And it's like never going to happen. And that's a very real reality. And then for, I think for foster parents, it's a very real reality that fear of whatever the foster parent struggles with, like we have to be wise, we have to be safe, we have mm -hmm. to be appropriate. And I am all for, you know, really thoroughly talking with your caseworker and, and kind of developing a plan for like, is it safe and appropriate to reach out? But more times than not, it is. But I think fear takes foster parents. Um, fear takes foster parents out. And I don't judge that. But mm -hmm. in the book, mm -hmm. I talk about how, um, you know, how we can just recognize that and how we need to recognize that there's kind of a power differential. And if there's going to be one person that reaches out to the other, it will most likely be the foster parent reaching out to the birth parent and not the other way around. Yes. And that these small, humble offerings can turn into something greater or they might just stay small, humble offerings. And I just really believe that, um, you know, that that's not nothing either, that that's not wasted if it doesn't turn into this like flourishing relationship. And when yes. I say relationship, I want to be very clear 
that I am not painting this picture of like running through a field of wildflowers for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like there Mm -hmm. has been Jennifer and I, and I'm not sharing with you and your listeners anything that we don't openly share together in public, but Mm -hmm. we have experienced every single emotion under the sun individually and likely towards the other, whether that's disbelief or rage or frustration or anger, like all of those things of like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe, I cannot believe this right now. We, it has not always been this picture. And there have been times where I have needed to pull back for my own emotional well-being, um, especially when, you know, we were doing visits and she relapsed and then she was just constantly a no-show. I was like, well, I, you know, there are, there's a lot of wisdom and knowing, you know, the rhythm that works for you and knowing how much you can emotionally take on. Mm-hmm. But um, it has been a joy for me to see other foster parents kind of offering up these small offerings, which has indeed turned into, it has snowballed into something bigger than just, you know, a handshake and eye contact and hi, how are you? Yes. But to recognize it takes two and it's not going to be everyone's story. And that's okay. Because at the end of the day, you're caring for the child. And it's a beautiful picture when foster care can holistically enfold the parent as well, but that's not always going to be the picture. And so um, I just would encourage those that are, are open to that, but don't have that, um, that, you know, you're not doing anything wrong. Like at the end of the day, your charge is to take care of that child the mm-hmm. best way you can. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, that's, that's the goal. And when this can happen, it's, it's great, but it also brings in another emotional layer that we have to be honest about. Um, you know, it's it's challenging to begin to really love and care and show empathy for a child's parents. Um, that can make all the all the emotions stronger throughout the case yeah. of foster care in terms of really rooting for that parent, really caring for their well-being, really loving this child and, and beginning to love this parent and saying, I'm rooting for this child. I'm rooting for this parent. I'm rooting for them together. And to also feel a sense of like loss. Um, I remember that, you know, when Jennifer's rights were terminated to feel like, oh, my gosh, I love this child. And I'm so privileged that he is mine forever to parent. Yep. And I've also come to care so deeply for his mom yep. that like this loss, I, I feel the loss on her behalf as well, which I don't think I would have ever had that on my radar if I hadn't been in relationship with her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can say yes and amen to absolutely everything you just said. I was over here nodding and just like, I can so relate and, and say yes. And it's, and it's what you're describing is something that's possible, but it's not the norm. But like you, I think it is up to the foster parent. And I've said this on several, I mean, we've had a couple of um, podcast episodes that have focused on foster parents fighting for reunification, because Mm -hmm. um, that sense of communicating and and taking that first step, I think that's the thing. Um, And you said it, taking that first step, the foster parent reaching out at court or at a visitation Mm -hmm. or whatever and saying something. I mean, my my line is, I want you to know that we are with you and for you and for your recovery. We're committed to mm-hmm. your child and we're committed to you, you know, and whatever yeah. that might look like, even if it's like, that's the last time we speak, but from here, we're committed to yes, supporting right. this for you, you know, but yeah, it can, look I love that. and we've had everything from, um, 
we've had everything from children who were reunified and then came back to our house for play dates and and you know with their mm-hmm. with their parent um and birthday mm-hmm. parties to um a couple who um when i tried to go and extend some kindness and and all of that um they followed it up with reporting us for neglect and we were in a CPS investigation. So, oh my <laughs> which yes, was I completely know. unfounded, but it was like, wow. So that's the gamut. And we have walked that gamut, yeah. you know, yes. yeah. but, um, wow. Well, um, I, I want to finish up our time together by just asking, um, what has, since you've put your book out and really since you've been doing a lot of, because I know you do some other advocacy and other support for foster parents and something else that you said, um, foster parents often feel isolated. I just did an interview earlier this week where I said, you know, my passion is that no foster parent ever feel alone. This is where I'm saying mm. like you and I have such similar hearts and we, we um, do. <laughs> because I'm like, you know, and it's coming from a lot of what I experienced and, and continue at times to experience, but you have to have other people in your life for whom you don't have to explain yourself. They just yeah. get it. They just get it because right. they're living it too. What has it been like for you sort of as, as you've stepped into the role of coach, advocate, mentor? Um, and what is it looking like right now? You've written your book. You're continuing to do support and advocacy work. Um, what does it look like yeah. now for you in the foster care world? Well, I... Um helped to found an organization called Embrace Oregon in the Portland metro area. Um, And that was, again, started through the seed of relationship. I just was asking my certifier who comes out to, you know, make sure our home is safe twice a year. I just asked her a simple question, like, what do kids do when they're waiting in the office? And she painted this picture of scrambling every time. And I just thought, wow, um, you know, there's something that can be done about this. And through the support and a grant that I received through my church started something called welcome boxes. And that really like turned into a lot of people asking like, what else can be done, um, to support kids in foster care. And, um, it just kind of took me down the slide of like, wow, you know, welcome boxes are great. Like, let's look at the, let's look at the actual visitation places at DHS where children are waiting. Do they communicate dignity and worth and value? And the answer was they don't. And so just inviting community to to come and step up individuals and churches and businesses and anyone and everyone who had a heart for vulnerable children to come alongside. And so all of this creation, Christy, like led to this, um, you know, to embrace Oregon, which is now, gone statewide um, through a grant to take this community mobilization. And you can, listeners, if they're interested, can go to embraceorgan.org or everychildorgan.org to like learn more about what we do. But that I'm still very much in the day-to-day um, on the foster parent support side of what's being done to mobilize more foster parents and to mobilize more community, recognizing that not everyone is meant to be a foster parent, but um, but there has to be more that are that need to step into this because of the crisis lack right now but to recognize that it's not just about calling people into more or sounding the trumpet of like we need more foster parents but to recognize that what we need are not people that are walking away being like one and done very disillusioned and very traumatized quite frankly through their experience like we need people who are going to like enter in with eyes wide open and that's why i feel so 
um, so much enthusiasm for just sharing the reality from what I see from my vantage point of the reality of fostering. Because I think the more we can share with people as they're discerning if foster care is for them, and it's certainly not for everyone, but if they're discerning it's for them, I think the more we can share with them um, so that they don't have this idea between the myth of what they think foster care is like and the lived reality. Right. Um, so in the midst of, you know, what I do professionally in my work with Embrace Oregon and Every Child, um, that is really like the heartbeat that I embody as we engage with foster parents is how can we make sure that we are supporting people well so that they are able to pour into themselves and their families um, to the best of their ability. That is so fantastic. I love it. Um, so the name of your book is No Sugar Coating, The Coffee Talk You Need About Foster Parenting. And that is what it is. <laughs> it's, you've accomplished your, your goal of sitting there. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> you said this is what I, if I were sitting down with someone who was thinking about becoming a foster parent, this is what I would want to share with them you've done it. I highly recommend the book and um, it is on the recommended resources page of my website. Um, but where can they find you, connect with you, follow what you're doing? You know what? Um, thank you for asking. Um, my website is jelana-gobel.com. Um, J-I-L-L-A-N-A-G-O-B-L-E.com. Um, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram as well at Jelana Gobel. Um, I don't post super often, but that is a goal of mine, just like real full life um, and just the reality of five yeah. kids under my roof right now. But um, I do really um, value engaging with people and just want, you know, my heart is to, to want people to feel tethered to um, community and tethered to other people that are living this in the trenches, which is why I so appreciate everything you're doing with the fostered life and how you've created this robust community of, of people that can engage and recognize that there's no question that's off limits and that, mm -hmm. you know, we're all on the same team and that there's no competition. There's nobody that's doing it perfectly. There's no facade. We're just like in it trying to love vulnerable children well and not lose our minds in the process. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> that yeah. Be tagline. That's right. Yeah. Trying to love vulner right. vulnerable children and not losing our minds in the process. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I love but it. It's been such a joy and an honor to connect with you and your listeners. Thanks for having me on and thanks for just reading the book and your, your feedback on the book. I, I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for being on the podcast. And I look forward to connecting with you again sometime very soon. Sounds great. Let's do it. You've been listening to my conversation with author and foster care advocate, Jelana Goble. I was so impressed with her book, No Sugar Coating, that I ordered several copies to give away to a few of my Patreon supporters. If you would like to be entered for your chance to win one of five copies of the book, go to my Patreon page and become a patron of A Fostered Life. You can pledge any amount you want, starting at $1 per month. Everyone who's a patron as of January 1st, 2020 will be entered to win. The link is below in the show notes and on my website at afosteredlife.com. Be sure to subscribe to A Fostered Life podcast so you don't miss a single episode. 
For more information and resources for foster parents, please visit afosteredlife.com, where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links, all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. If you're a foster parent who's feeling like you're out there on your own, consider joining the Flourishing Foster Parent, a community designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find information on the Flourishing Foster Parent at afosteredlife.com FFP. One more thing. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening, and thanks for caring about foster care.